From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Lizzie Watson, ACLU staff attorney and your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with music legend John Baptiste. He's an Oscar-winning composer, pianist, band leader, and singer who is going into the 2022 Grammy Awards with 11 nominations, the most of any artist this year. You may have seen him on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where he's been music director and band leader since 2015. You may have heard him on the soundtrack of the Pixar animated film Soul, where he performed and composed the jazz portion of the score. Or you may have experienced his live performances in the streets of New York City with his band Stay Human during the pandemic lockdown, the protests of 2020, or during one of his Love Riots, a spontaneous show in the streets where the musicians stand among the crowd and exchange the energy of the music and the moment. We'll talk to him about his New Orleans roots, his most recent album, We Are, and his commitment to creating music that celebrates his culture and aims to unite us all. John, welcome to At Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for being here. This is so exciting. This is my last interview for the podcast for a while. So I'm so glad that you decided to do it. So, because it's like a grand finale for me. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. So, to start, congratulations because you have 11 Grammy nominations, a number that only has been exceeded twice in Grammy history. The nominations include Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and other categories like American Roots, R&B, Jazz, Score, Video, and Classical. What was it like when you got the news? How has it sunk in since November uh, when the nominations were announced? It was a celebration. Uh, It was a really beautiful thing to think about how much has went into the craft and how many different ancestors and how many different people along the way have supported and contributed to culminate in a moment to be recognized across the world in so many different categories. You know, the the inspiration of it has not waned one little bit. I am still very excited and very inspired. I'm going to continue to take this inspiration with me on my path for the rest of my life. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, so I know your family's kind of featured on the album. And you know, I mentioned you were born in New Orleans into a family of music legends. Can you tell us about kind of the legacy that you're coming from musically, I guess? <laughs> yes, yes, of course. There's so many great musicians that come from New Orleans, and that's a rich legacy. And I happen to be from one of the largest musical families in the city of New Orleans, the dynasty of the Batiste family is an honor for me to forward and to continue to spread the the lessons I learned growing up. Um, I, I remember my dad as as my first musical mentor. He played bass. He still plays bass, and he's really an incredible teacher. He shared records with me. We played together. And my mother, who is incredibly smart, she would share all of these other things outside of music with me. So I ended up having a really well-rounded sort of palette, if you will, a palette of of things to discover. And it's all fed into my music. You know, my my father 
is the middle child of seven brothers, and my mother is the second eldest of eight siblings. And on my father's side, there was a family band. And with seven brothers, you can imagine how many cousins and how many musicians that were spawned from that family band. There's Alvin Batiste, who was a mentor of mine, who's a, a, a distant relative of mine. He's basically taught everybody who you've heard play an instrument of note from New Orleans over the last 50 years. He passed away in 2007. But him and Ellis Marsalis and Kid Jordan, they were like the three village elders. And they, they, they educated, they dedicated their life and their career after touring and performing and learning. They, they decided when they were fairly young that they wanted to stay in New Orleans and teach the next generations. So, you know, I, I was born into all of that. It was just an incredible head start. <laughs> I, I, I kind of was born into this space where it was so rich in culture and rich in education and with great parents. And coming from a culturally rich and diverse neighborhood where you see a range of life. You see street life and you see people who are erudite. And I, I had that whole thing. So it sounds like you had models. You knew that people could be musicians, like as their professional career. Did you always want to do that? Did you always feel like that was accessible to you? Did you was there ever a question in your mind, can I make it in this profession? I thought about how I wanted to approach the profession and still do to this day. It's always evolving. I never thought that I would be a musician in the early years when I was a kid. I was just a part of the family musical gatherings, whether it would be at Jazz Fest or some festival in Kenner or just playing in my grandmother's house. There was a band room and I would play with my cousins. I would go to Uncle Paul's house and we would play and um, my cousins, Travis and Jamal, we had the junior family band and we would play video game themes. Yeah. Just like hanging out, playing video games, we would then go hang out and play the themes from those video games on instruments. My peers and, and those who had that kind of upbringing, you know, Trombone Shorty, Troy Andrews, um, we had a band together that we started when he was 15 and I was 14. And that was when I started to really start um, a professional relationship with it outside of my family. Um, and then by the time I was 15 and 16, I started leading bands of my own and people were telling me that I was really good at it. And it was something that I was also working really hard at. So a combination of folks pushing me to be better, me pushing myself to be better, me having a professional relationship with it. And I graduated high school early, a year early. So by the time I was 17, I had this incredible opportunity to go to New York City and study at Juilliard. And when I was at Juilliard at 17 years old, I was apart from all of that. And that was when I really started to make a, a decision, you know, a full body decision to pursue it. As you look at my catalog now, you know, there's been evolutions of John Batiste. <laughs> so I'm still evolving. I'm still just uh, figuring out how to pursue it every day. Yeah, I totally get that. And I'm so glad you mentioned the work because you're such an amazing musician. And like having heard you give interviews where you're like, talk, you're giving an interview and then you're also just like playing the piano. <laughs> like it's so amazing. And it's like people should recognize how much work is actually going into that, your musicianship and what you're able to bring as an artist, right? It's, um, it's natural talent, but it's also so much work. 
I want to talk about uh, summer of 2020. You were working on the movie Soul, and you were recording this album, um, We Are. What was the story behind the album? Like, how did it come to be? How does this album speak to the time that it was written in, you know, during the pandemic with the um, racial reckoning, we can call it, um, during the Trump presidency? Kind of what was what was going on and how did you put all that into the album? I I think that if I had thought about it from a direct consciousness and not also from a subconscious relationship to it, I wouldn't have been able to say as much as as I, I I wanted to say because so much of it I've lived with before the summer of 2020. It's a very, very specific album in terms of my own experience and coming of age. And the time that we're living in is the frame of my coming of age. But it's also a universal album because it speaks to the fact that there's this universal humanism that that binds all of us. We're all experiencing the same things that have happened for generations of people, but it just comes in different forms. And every time a generation is is able to face the problems of their time, they have an opportunity to change what the next generation will experience and change the form of the archetypes, <laughs> the, the those things that we just have to constantly grapple with. Freedom is a constant struggle. It's a constant fight. Uh, Maintaining our humanity, our collective humanity, and not being marginalized or put in boxes that limit our expression of who we are and and ultimately that quell our greatest natural resource, which is the things that are born from the human soul. Things that come from the mind of of young boys and girls who may never have the opportunity to manifest those those visions and those dreams that could eventually change the world. And I, I just was writing about so much. Once you get to a point, you're you're like a lightning rod as a creator. You you're conducting so much electricity that you can't hold it. It just it it, it shoots out. And and um and and you got to get to the point where you, you you're magnetic to it. You 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 have a magnetism for all of the things that are floating in the air that are in the zeitgeist. You have this magnetism to to gather them together and filter them through your artistry. So that's really what I was trying to do, and 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 hopefully we accomplished that. I definitely think you did, and you hear so much. Like, it's such an inspired album, and it feels like like there's, like, rap on there, like, straight-up rap song, right? And also, like, Movement 11, like a jazz song that would fit on any, like, com- almost completely instrumental jazz album, you know? So, and I know with the song Freedom, I saw the video, and it's featuring what seems to be the streets of where you're from. So it seems like you're taking inspiration from there as well. So how did you think about using both, like, location and um, genre to in the album? Or how did you put that together in the album? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think about location a lot. I think about worlds. I think about characters. Narratives are a big part of my musical expression. I always see visions of people or see worlds that I can immerse myself in, and the sound is representative of that. 
And music videos like Freedom and I Need You were really taking that to a very literal place. And and the team that I worked with, Alan Ferguson, this incredible director, Jamel McWilliams, incredible creative choreographer, director. We came together and created this brain trust to do that in the videos. The beauty of being a creative is that you can pull from all of these places in life and really create your own form of expression, your own language. Jean-Michel Basquiat did that with painting. And that's how I look at making music. You know, music isn't really based in genre. That's that's a construct. Music comes from culture. Music comes from life. Um, genres are what we name culture and how we classify life after the fact. But those things don't really exist. And if you free yourself from that, it allows you to create from a purely authentic place, as authentic as you can be, as pure as you can be. And that's what I love to do. You are educating me today. <laughs> I, try, I try to liberate my mind and all the times I find the ways that I'm boxing myself in unnecessarily, as you just explained. Um, so your high school marching band is on the track, We Are, and I heard your grandfather and nephew are on there as well. Um, so I'd like to hear about that. But also, what did you play in your high school marching band? Uh, I had the great honor of having the St. Augustine High School Marching Band, St. Aug, the Marching 100, the Purple Knights are incredibly renowned in our city, historically black high school with incredibly notable and still strong contributing alum across different sectors of business and the community and worldwide. My family has a lineage of folks who went there. And I played some percussion drums in the marching band, in the parade. And my cousin Russell, who went there in the 70s, he wrote a drum cadence. Like you hear those drum cadences during the parade where the band will play something as almost a, a call. It's a battle call to other bands. Like this is our drum line. We're ready to, to hit the streets and take over. It's our time. you know. And he wrote a cadence. It's called Russ. I knew that he did that when he was in school, but I didn't know that the band in 2021 was still playing his cadence that he composed. And we were in the studio, and they started playing on the, on the break between takes from We Are. They just started playing this cadence. And they played. I was like, what was that? We should record that. And it's not on the album, but you know, they said, that's Russ. And they didn't know that Russ was my cousin. And I was like, you know that that cadence that y'all are playing that's in the drum book was written in the 70s by my cousin. So just the lineage of stuff that is, is embedded in this record is so, so deep. My grandfather, he was an incredible, incredible activist in his time. One of the first, he paved the way in so many ways president of Hotel Workers Union, first black president of Hotel Workers Union in Louisiana. So having him in that track with St. Aug in that track, and then my nephews who are, are, are six and, and 11 on the track, just the, the lineage and the depth of, of what that means for me. Um, I really feel so proud to have been able to pull that together. 
Yes. Honoring your your family and where you're from and really Black music in so many ways, like the marching band and Black culture are just like so um, intertwined. Uh, so the songs on the album are not overtly political. They don't fit into a neat social justice category, but in some ways they feel like a playbook for what we do to bridge our divides, to tell the truth, relish in your roots, rejoice in one another, but also feel pain and cry when you need to. Was your intention to offer up a path forward or guidance um, in the lyrics and the feeling that you brought to the album? I, I believe that with art, there's such a deeply emotional quality to the music. I think sometimes we overlook the power of music to tell us more than we're saying. And it becomes more powerful that way, almost because you hear something that could sound so simple or so basic, so universal, so fundamental, just something that everybody can connect to. But then there are layers and layers and layers of meaning and and, and that is injected into those words by the music that supports those words. I believe that people are smart, people are insightful, and they don't come to art and creativity to be proselytized to. It's it's a means of, of catharsis. It's a means of release. It's a means of regeneration. It's a means of connecting to the divine. And, and, and God is in all of the details of orchestration and composing, arranging, and lyrics. And I can say things that even... I don't always know the full weight of them. And, and that's when it's beyond yourself. That's the goal of, of art. We shouldn't know the range of it when we're done. Yeah, that's so true. It's like you put it out there and then people take what, what you hope they would take from it, things that you had never thought that they would take from it. Um, speaking of things that you don't have to say, so many of the songs on this album and your songs and your videos and your live performance uh, just make you want to dance and move. Um, what's the connection for you between movement and freedom or liberation and between like feeling in your body and being set free? As a child, we all know this. We know when we're kids that there's something about moving, something about play that connects to a space in us that is as old as time. It feels right. It feels uninhibited. In play, there's laughter. And when there's play and there's laughter, there's no fear. There's no judgment. And in that kind of natural state, we also release a lot of tension. And I think that that is the ideal state for us to be in if we want to truly experience what freedom is. I've read about so many incredible cultures that over time have had ritualistic dances um, <laughs> and, and sacred dances. It's deeply philosophical for me when I want to make people shake their butt. Um, <laughs> in a song, you don't have all that time and you're not trying to give a lecture. So I always want to get to all of these things that I'm saying, but in the most direct way. 
Yes, I definitely feel that as you were talking. My niece is five um, and she really loves uh, I Need You. Like, it's just such a deep connection, which is like funny, but you can't, like, she loves it so much and it's so funny, but you don't want to laugh at her because that's going to make her self-conscious. But it's just like such a clear, you know, it's like deeper than logic, you know, for her, her connection. You're inspiring the children. I love that. Tell her hello. Oh, I most definitely, I most definitely will. So you've described your music as social music. And one of the albums with your with Stay Human is titled Social Music. What does social music mean to you? Woo! Wow. Social music is the idea of music in the 21st century, going back to its roots among the people. What I mean by that is. If you look before we sold music and it was a part of this ecosystem of business, there were many hundreds of years, <laughs> thousands of years of music used in community, used as part of spiritual practice and used as something to transform and translate um, Every every generation translating wisdom and transforming as time moves on. I, I wanted to figure out what would that look like in in the 21st century if we brought music back to the roots. And I try to embed that in everything that I do, even if I'm on TV playing for millions of people or playing, you know, a uh, 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 a performance. And it's it's a lot of folks out there will have moments, and, and that'll be the ethos of it. And it ultimately becomes this spiritual practice, this exchange between me and the audience where we have moments where we'll just take unplug all the mics and we'll just go sit in a circle in the dirt and we'll sing or we'll chant together or we'll do this thing I call a love riot, where it's this processional in the tradition of New Orleans where when people pass away or when someone is born, they'll have a parade or they have music for it and they'll have a celebration of their life. And, and, you know, things like that, I'll take out of context and put it into the context of the 21st century music industry, entertainment industry space. Um, so that's what social music is about. Oh, I love that. And yeah, I've seen, uh, I've seen some of your videos, although I lived in New York and I never saw you out there <laughs> on the streets. So I miss, I miss those personal performances, but I've seen it and it just is so beautiful and brings so much like energy. I mean, it is social music <laughs> embodied. So you've been outspoken about the role of artists in times of social discontent, protest, and of course, you know, the hope for change. To that end, you and your band Stay Human actively participated in Black Lives Matter protests during the summer of 2020 performing uh, live across New York. What do you see as the role of music in protest? And what is your role in protest as a musician and leader and artist? To reaffirm humanity and to combat apathy. Those are the two real goals I believe in. Because I think that there's this aspect of what Dr. King said that is difficult for us to believe in times of division. It's difficult for us to believe, as we've seen with Black Lives Matter, we, we are in a time where people's humanity is being stripped in different ways, in different forms. And 
something about music. I had a great relationship with the incredible Congressman John Lewis, and he would tell stories of them being in moments of protest where songs would just emerge. They would break out in song. The spirit would move over the the group of them and they would start to sing. And something about the way that that affected those people who were ready to attack them, the way that that reaffirmed their humanity and also gave them a sense of peace and connection to God and perspective on why they were doing what they were doing. So there's there's something about music that can achieve many things at one time. And then there's the apathy that we face when we're so overwhelmed, like with voting. You, you look at the statistics before the last administration of 2016, you know, there was something ridiculous, like over 40 percent of eligible voters didn't vote. I'm just like the, the gerrymandering and the voter suppression and just the history of distrust and just overwhelming feeling of it being rigged. And there was this this prevailing apathy that I think you can wake people up and shake them out of it and show them that, no, this is a, a marathon. <laughs> it's not over. You we, let, let's get let's get back to business. So so that's what social music is. Yeah. Yeah. That makes um, so much sense. So you have been talking about, we've been talking about today so much about joy and black joy um, specifically. And I was asked to host the podcast for Black History Month. And this is my bonus. <laughs> this is my bonus uh, ending. Um, what do you think is the connection between black joy and black liberation? Well, I think that Joy is the expression of our internal love and everything comes from love, everything. Um, And the absence of love is evil. Um, So love of self, love for yourself, uh, 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 ability to have a, a real acceptance and true true understanding of of why everybody is special and also why you if you're different to the next man or if you uh, if you have your heritage and why that's special people think that when we highlight differences <laughs> it it's in lieu of other people and the value of what they have to offer no or uh, like when somebody is trying to hire someone of a specific race or, or culture to fill uh, uh, to change a tradition or to change the trajectory of what things have always been, it's in lieu of actual quality. No, quality and the value of each person individually is not thrown out the window when you're trying to highlight something about yourself and your culture and your history. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can exist in a space where we're trying to address something specific, but we're not doing it in a way that throws everything that we value and it throws excellence and, and expertise out the window. And that is a part of the whole collective human experience being better and maybe hasn't been highlighted or maybe hasn't been shown in the best light. 
So you're trying to adjust it for the generation that you're in and generations to come. Uh, thank you so much um, for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us today and for all of your work. Congratulations on your nominations. And uh, you sang me in when you first joined. So I was hoping you could kind of sing me out as you hang up <laughs> on me, if that's okay. <laughs> I love that. I just need you, you, you. We've done a lot of living. We're working overtime. Don't need another million. You got that gold mine, Lizzie. Uh yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. As a personal note for me, this is my last week on the mic. I'm passing the At Liberty torch to my colleague, Linda Morris, a staff attorney at the Women's Rights Project. You'll love what she's got in store for you. Until next week, try to walk on the sunny side of the street.